0: mercy, and peace to you, church. Thank you, Brandon and Robin, for allowing me to proclaim the gospel again to you. I really enjoy when the Lord works uh, in his church in a way that you don't expect. The Bible study ended this morning, really, uh, saying a lot that I'm going to say in the sermon. So if you were here, this will be a, a repeat. Um, So it's really good. It's a kind providence of God that lets me know that he's meeting his people, and he's with a man who is in weakness and fear and trembling. So thank you, Lord, for that. Um, If you would pray with me, and then we'll get started. Holy God in heaven above, you rule and you reign. You are sovereign over all things, sovereign over the universe, the stars, the galaxies, sovereign over this earth, sovereign over the hearts of men and nations, and most importantly and most gloriously and most comforting, Lord, you are sovereign over the church. We ask you today to please meet us by the power of your word Lord, grant your Holy Spirit to please open ears, open eyes. Grant us to hear wondrous things from your word, Lord. And grant the preacher strength, not of his own, but from on high. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. (coughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, in an official document entitled... Pastoral guidance for the use in conjunction with the affirmation of baptismal faith in the the context of gender transition. That's a mouthful. The Church of England outlines practically its teaching and practice regarding the baptism of supposed transgender Christians. In it, the church states, quote, The Church of England welcomes and encourages the unconditional affirmation of trans people, equally with all people, within the body of Christ, and rejoices in the diversity of that body into which all Christians have been baptized by one spirit. This baptismal ceremony is to have, as they, as they say, quote, a celebratory character. Now, among such supporting biblical texts for such an event are... Genesis 17, 1 through 7, God changed the name of Sarai to Sarah. John 20, verses 19 through 29, blessed are those who have not seen but believe. In news of like manner, the Associated Press recently recorded the ongoing slow motion schism among the second largest denomination in America, the United Methodist Church over issues of banning same-sex marriage and ordaining openly LGBTQ clergy. These issues are really surface symptoms of much, much deeper theological issues. And in the not-too-distant past, 2019, the largest Christian denomination in America, and I think probably one that's still close to our hearts, the Southern Baptist Convention, adopted radical culturally marxist ideologies as guidance to help christians understand the world around them these resolutions have created no small shockwave within the ranks of the sbc Some think this is going to be the thing that splits the the convention apart and as the saying goes if you've not heard it you're going to hear it now once you go woke you go broke and to this day these resolutions have yet to be repudiated Theological controversy is not new to the church. Since its beginning, the church has faced many enemies of the truth, enemies without, and unfortunately, enemies within. The truth has always been under attack, and sadly, today, the church has really lost its interest in guarding the truth. In fact, we could say the church is largely opposed to going to war for the truth, To be uncompromising in the face of cultural pressure. But it's the enemy within her ranks, false prophets, apostates, that has always posed the greatest threat and the most particular threat. Jesus warned against them, Matthew 7. Paul wept at the prospect of them infiltrating the church in Acts 20. Peter speaks powerfully against them in 2 Peter 2. And it is against those enemies of the church that we must be most particularly on guard uh, more than anything else. Well, we have to ask the question, what is the true church to do? How are we to defend the truth? Well, as Brandon mentioned, I invite you to turn with me to the little book of Jude, the often forgotten book of Jude. It's like reading Habakkuk, when's the last time you read Jude? And i want to begin a series of expositions in the book of Jude. It's a very small letter, but it it does pack a mighty, mighty punch um, to these issues. I just thank God for this book as I've studied it. It's just amazing. And I pray this exposition will give us something of the attitude we ought to have toward theological controversy. And really help us also to act appropriately in light of it. Some of us are very tender-hearted, and we don't want to cause a rift. Others of us can pick up the sword and chop people's heads off and not look back. We fall off the donkey on both sides. And I think Jude is going to help us to be balanced right there in the middle. Now, I don't know when this series will end, but I know when it will begin, which is now. So... Let's read this little book together, Jude. It's, it's 25 verses. Let's read Jude together here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the ESV here. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus... "...who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, I should end the sermon there. Well, Jude is the next to last and often overshadowed book by this big book of Revelation. Everybody wants to figure that one out. It's a book fit for our time, however. Its truth is suitable for all time, and if you read the commentators on this book, every one of them say the same thing. This book was written for my time. John Calvin says that of this book. I find that interesting. It's a a book suitable for our time because the truth is under attack. We see that in the news. We see that around us. And Jude is a, a general or Catholic lower sea Catholic, lowercase c, uh, epistle, written for the early church and written for us. The entire letter, as we just read, is only 25 verses. And it's written to appeal to us, to the church, to contend for the faith. But don't let the smallness of what we just read make you disregard the great theology in there. Jude actually has a very high Christology. Christology. The way he understands Jesus, even in this early time, is very, very significant. In this little letter, he uses four titles to describe Jesus. He calls him Christos, Christ. He calls him Kurios, Lord. He calls him Soter, or Savior. And kind of most significantly for our purposes this morning, he calls him Despotes, Master. It's a unique word in Greek, and it's developed in a Jewish context. So Jude presents Jesus as not only the agent of God's salvation in his book, but also the one who brings God's judgment. And that is a welcome thing amid rampant apostasy. Who will will we turn to when things are falling apart? Now, as Jude writes, he assumes that the readers have a deep knowledge of the Old Testament. The lion's share of this book, 60% of it really, is the middle section, verses 4 through 19. In this section, he explains several Old Testament types, as we just read, of false teachers. And he does that to establish the danger that the church lives under. Some have said that Jude never really mentions their heresy. I don't agree with that. If you look in verse 4, he designates these people as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These were, as we could put it, antinomians, ones who were trying to get out from under or away from or against the law. They were licentious men. They thought they were above the moral law. Jude not only points out their heresy, but in case we were confused about how to identify these people, he spends a lot of time pointing out their lifestyle. By looking at their lives, Jude says, you can identify who these false prophets and apostates are. There's no greater, really, no greater evidence for what we believe than how we live. And Jude is trying to make that point. There's no greater evidence for what we believe than how we live. Even so, this is not Jude's main point, although this, this lion's share of the letter, the 60% of the letter, uh, is not really Jude's main point in the letter. It shouldn't be really titled as four ways to identify a false prophet, um, if you were to give it a popular title. This kind of negative polemic that Jude gives takes kind of a backseat to the central message. He's concerned with teaching us how to contend for the faith. How to contend for the faith. And he does this at the end of the letter. Look at verses 20 through 23. You, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he goes on to explain the attitudes we ought to have ...toward those who are not only caught up in apostasy, but those who may be uh, caught up in apostasy in the future. So this is what we're about. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to explore in this this exposition. How do we contend for the faith? You've been called as a Christian out out of the world, and you've been called into the fray. You've been called into the battle for truth. How will you contend? How will you contend? How will we contend as a church? And so we'll begin this exposition by looking at, fortunately and unfortunately, the first verse. So I feel like we need to establish some things here, and Judas is very wise in doing what he's doing at the beginning of this letter. So first point is we're going to look at, we're going to look at the writer of the letter, and our second point, the readers or the recipients of the letter. So the first verse in two parts, the writer and the readers. First verse, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So who is this writer? Who is Jude? Jude is really a shortened form of the Greek word Judas. Now some have speculated that the name here for this letter was shortened to disassociate himself from that nefarious character, Judas Iscariot. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And so we know little of Jude's life. However, what we discover in the pages of Scripture and some extra-biblical resources help us form a picture of the man, help us to to give a context to the letter. First, Jude was one of the four brothers of Jesus. Matthew 13:55 relates him probably as the youngest of these brothers. Is not the car- is this not the carpenter's son speaking of Jesus? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He was a blood relative, a half-brother of the Lord. Secondly, Mark relates that Jude was not a believer of Jesus Christ before the resurrection. After calling the 12 apostles, Jesus went home, and the crowds were so great that they couldn't even get inside to eat. And we read, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying saying about him, He's out of his mind. Now, I don't know if we would ever look at the Lord and say, You're out of your mind unless you're an unbeliever. But that was his family's take on the man. Jesus is out of his mind. Acts 1.14 relates that Jude became a believer in Christ after the resurrection. He, Mary, and his other brothers were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, which actually is today. Seven Sundays from what we celebrate traditionally as the resurrection, 50 days. Acts 1.14 reads this way. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And that includes Jude. Well, third, according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, Jesus' brothers became really traveling missionaries, which more than likely included Jude. Paul, as he makes this argument for provisions for his missionary journeys, he says this, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So Paul makes an argument that these men, these brothers of Jesus were traveling missionaries. Jude was also a very competent and polemical man. The Greek he uses in this letter, as one commentator mentions, are the sort of rhetorical skills which a Jewish preacher in Greek would need to acquire and which one could acquire from familiarity with Jewish literature in Greek and from much listening to Jewish and Christian sermons. So we have a man who is very Jewish yet very fluent in another language. If his missionary journeys carried him around to do these things, it's really not hard to understand that his Greek would be as impeccable as it is. And we find him to be competent in this letter. The character of this letter, I wish we had a Bible study time to do this, the character of this letter is structured in a very exegetical way. It's highly conversant with Jewish literature, and it is very eschatological. Four times in this letter, Jude mentions this future parousia, this future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the thing in which he hopes for the most. He was, and this is an enormous point we'll, we'll discover as we go through this journey together, he was a hopeful and a lively believer in the coming of Christ right in the midst of theological controversy. And we'll explore that truth later. Well, this is Jude. But how does he describe himself? The first thing he says is servant of Jesus Christ. Servant of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to take a sharpie and write the word slave over that word. Slave. Having this close family relation to the Lord one would expect him to describe himself as the brother of Jesus. How much more clout could you build by saying, Jesus is my half-brother. Don't mess with me. Okay? Jude presents a powerful picture of the transforming nature of the gospel. He describes himself in a gripping, yet in a very humbling way. He describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Slave. That word is a cultural ticking time bomb. Our culture can't bear to hear that word, much less discuss it, discuss it. But in our text, it is an exact word. There's no ambiguity as to what it means. Now, the word means simply this a person which renders service to another not as a matter of choice or whether or not he likes it because the one is subject as a slave to the will of his owner. The term means total dependence on another. In fact, as a believer in the New Testament, it is one of the most prevailing descriptions of a Christian in the New Testament. 124 times you and I are described as slaves, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this word has been hidden in evangelical theology, and this actually dates all the way back to the King James translation. This word was changed in the authorized version to soften it, I think. It was changed to the word servant. Some of you are reading the NASB. I believe it says Bond servant. My own translation, the ESV, says servant of Jesus Christ. But servants aren't bought with a price. Slaves are. Servants aren't property. Slaves are. Servants aren't owned. Slaves are. Servants have rights. Slaves are wholly at the disposal of another. We could say it like this. Slaves are living tools. Living sacrifices, we could say. Now, if that rubs you the wrong way, Christian slavery, this identification of who we are, who Jude is as a believer, goes much deeper. It goes to the internal. The Christian slave is not permitted to think whatever he wants. He's not permitted to desire Whatever he wants, he's not permitted to set his own personal goals, to determine his personal future, to desire a personal outcome, or to speak his own personal preferences. God forbid if I stand up here and do that. In the language of his heart's prayer, he is taught fundamentally to pray what? Thy will be done. That is the attitude of a Christian slave. The Christian is a slave of externally by way of obedience because he is first a slave internally from the heart. And that is Jude. That's Jude. Right up front, you want to get his business card. He doesn't put his accolades up. He says, slave of Jesus Christ. For Jude to be a Christian was to be a slave. He had died to his old master, and he was alive to another. Now we have to face this fact. All of us are slaves. Every person born is a slave. You're either a slave to sin, and it is your master, or you're a slave to righteousness. Either way, we are all slaves, beloved. One of them will kill us. One of them will save us. And Jude delighted to call himself this. So much so that describing his office and service to the church, his very public identity in writing was the word slave. Put all the PhDs aside, put the years of ministry aside, put the earthly accomplishments aside, Boil Jude down and you get one thing. Jude. Slave of Jesus Christ. Now what is equally stark about this designation is that this title to the Greek mind would have been utterly distasteful. In Jude's cultural context, this would have not been the thing you call yourself. There there may have been nothing more distasteful to the Greek mind than slavery. The Greek was free. He was a free man, and he boasted in that freedom. His personal dignity was tied up in that idea. The Greek had a friendly idea concerning a servant. Servants could hold some sort of dignity in the culture, but a slave with no possibility of evading his master's will This was a thing scorned. It was a derogatory term and totally excluded from the self reflection of the Greek man. In their self reflection, they were to consider that if they were to consider themselves anything, it would not be a slave. They could never imagine themselves as such. Yet here we have Jude, missionary carrier of the gospel to the greek-speaking world introducing himself as a slave talk about cultural insensitivity talk about contextual absent-mindedness you hear that in missions talks we have to contextualize the gospel to reach the nations talk about being tone-deaf Yet, here in plain terms, before the church and before his culture, he is self described as a slave. Missions board, a mission board would have a field day with this guy. They wouldn't know where to put him. You have to drop that title, Jude. There's no way you're going to reach the culture by being so upfront. Don't call yourself a slave. Well, he was not tone deaf, he was not tone deaf, and he was not culturally insensitive. Nor was he unaware of the fundamental heart attitude against those he wrote against, the apostates. They were those, as he says in verse 4, who deny our master, Jesus Christ. And those who reject authority, verse 8. Jude was, I think we could say, as wise as a serpent... He just didn't have the backbone of one. He was a wise man. This designation of slave by Jude at the outset of of his letter was really a masterful way to introduce himself and to set himself and every Christian, that is you and I, squarely in opposition to the enemies of the truth. Apostates do not deal well with a title such as slave. They reject authority. They deny Christ as their master, only to fulfill their lusts. They reject these responsibilities for the sake of license. Grace, right? We live under grace, and they assume they do. And later Jude will say that the Christian is not to live in such a way, but to live in holiness. So here's Jude, slave of Jesus Christ, but also he describes himself as the brother of James. Jude designates himself as the brother of James. Now, this is likely the same James who authored the New Testament letter of James. James eventually became an incredibly prominent figure in the early church and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, if you read the martyrdom of James, you know that Eusebius records that the Jews martyred James by taking him to the pinnacle of the temple Throwing him down. He didn't die upon the fall. And some picked up uh, bats or clubs and into the job. They bashed him to death. And for Jude's purposes, he mentions James as his brother as sort of an appeal to authority. Readers of his letter would have understood who James was without question. It'd be like uh, me grabbing a letter from, I don't know, John MacArthur and reading it to you. Based on that authority, you would probably hear what he had to say. Now, each of these things, slave of Christ and brother of James, would have added significant weight to what Jude intended to say to the churches. And I think it should add significant weight to our hearts as we read this epistle. But let us never forget this before we move on. Jude never plays the half brother of Jesus card, he could have but he did not. Forever recorded in the annals of history, he is James' brother, but he is Christ's slave. And that should challenge our own hearts to consider how we describe ourselves. Well, that is the writer of the epistle. Who are the readers or the recipients? We've seen who the man is, who's the audience. Jude is not really addressing a particular church as many of the other epistles in the New Testament do. Instead, I believe he's speaking to the church universally. This is a very, again, lowercase c, Catholic epistle. In this introduction, Jude is concerned with setting the believer's minds upon the facts concerning their life in Christ. Before we go to war, before we stand for the truth, you have to know who you are. You will not stand otherwise. Nothing can rob your strength as a believer in controversy, and it's inevitable, any more than forgetting who we are. Nothing can rob your strength more in controversy than forgetting who you are in Christ. Other apostles knew this. Peter warned the churches against false prophets. His first letter is full of describing who we are who we are in Christ. We're born again to a living hope, called to be holy, living stones, holy people, those who have obtained faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jude does the same. He sets before the believers who they are in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to appeal to us later to contend for the faith. But he has to set our minds here First and foremost, on some very important things. The church will face some tough questions. We're going to face tough questions, and we probably have if we've walked with the Lord long enough. We're going to face tough questions about apostates, about false prophets. If you're in Bible study, you'll know what I'm talking about. One such question is something like this. Is God sovereign really over all of this? If there's such widespread apostasy, if things seem to be falling apart, is God really in control? And if we're called to contend, if you and I are called to contend for the faith, will we make it through? That may be a bigger question in our mind. Will we make it through? Will we survive the fight as our salvation in jeopardy? So Jude calls the church's attention to, I think, three immovable things about who she is and who you are. He calls them beloved, he calls them called, he calls them beloved, and he calls them kept. You can see that in verse one. The first designation Jude wants to remind us of is the fact that we are called. We are a called people. Now, this term is a technical term, and it relates to the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The Christian is designated as a called one. Now, there are many, we know this as good Calvinists write, there are many who are called outwardly by the preaching of the gospel. Jesus said as much, many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear the word, many hear the plea, but it only remains something that passes through the ear and not a thing which settles in the heart. The calling of which Jude speaks is that calling by which the Spirit of God does that work beyond the ear, into the heart, persuading our heart to believe. John 5.25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the calling Jude is talking about. That's the calling which you answered in regeneration. This, the Christian enjoys this title because of the one who called us. It is God alone who does the calling. John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. Finish the verse. The flesh is what? No help at all. It is the spirit who gives life. This is a recognition of God's sovereign monergistic work in bringing a dead soul to life. And it does much to humble our proud minds and hearts. It seasons us with Humility. And as we're going to discover in this letter, humility is an indispensable quality of those involved in theological controversy. Humility is indispensable. And Jude wants us to know this. We are called ones. Not proud. Not boasting. Not better than our lost neighbor or even the heretic in the church down the street. I didn't have anybody in mind, by the way, for the internet. But by the grace of God, we are called. We are called. We're called from self to Christ. We're called from sin to holiness. We're called from war as an enemy of God to peace. Isaiah 2.4 is, is a beautiful text. He has beaten our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks, He's made us learn peace and not war. As an unbeliever, all we knew was war with God. But he's beat our swords into plowshares. What he's taken, he's taken what we used to use against God for purposes of rejecting his authority, and now has made it fruitful, fruit bearing in our life. He's made us learn peace and not war. He's called us from misery and hell to hope and glory he's called us to himself never to depart we've been called to a destiny beloved now this is this is very important because jude is going to spell out for a large portion of this letter the destiny of others he's going to spell out the destiny of apostates destiny of false prophets We are bound for a destiny. This is the first thing Jude wants us to know, that we are a called people. We're also, second designation, beloved in God the Father. God has called us effectually by his spirit. He's given us life sovereignly, and he designates us as beloved, beloved This is the second thing Jude wants us to know. You are wrapped in the love of God, the Father. You are cherished by the Father. We could call this the grounds of our calling. Why has God called us? Because he loved us. Now, being designated as beloved in God the Father, it not only signifies that this is the disposition of God's heart, But this is also the thing that sets him into action for us. We are loved by God as an objective reality from all eternity. And we are beloved by God the Father as an experiential reality here and now. He's loving you right now through the preaching of his word. You've been loved objectively from all eternity And you are loved experientially in time, here and now. From eternity, he set his love upon us objectively. He loves us from eternity out of his free grace. Out of his mere free grace. Without anything in us causing him to make him love us. There's nothing he saw in you to love you. Nothing moves God to love you not even your terrible state of sin. That is what we deserve, beloved. We deserve misery, but we've received grace. It's what our sin has caused, but he loves us because it pleased him to love us. And this should cause the believer to wonder, to a really holy wonder. And we're called, and we're called beloved experientially. He actually, here and now, manifests that love to us. And Jude tells us by the way he speaks in this verse that that love continually remains upon us. He speaks in, for you Greek nerds, a perfect tense. This is a thing that abides or remains upon the people of God. Facing controversy... Standing for the truth over the long haul. It's really easy to shoot out a tweet and sound bold behind a keyboard. But when it's staring you in the face, when it's your brother or your sister or your family or the friend at the church down the street or the celebrity pastor who's now defunct. Facing controversy over the long haul can wear you out. But calling to mind the facts that God's love remains on us keeps us steady. It steadies us up, and it helps us to press on in the fight. What we may doubt by our experience if we don't feel the love of God, I think can be strengthened by the facts that we call to mind. He has said it, and we must believe it. He loves us. Now, these two things work together in forming and really encouraging the Christian. So Jude's point here is to set our minds on how God deals with his people. How is God dealing with us, even in difficult times? Pagans expect their gods to do what? Love them one minute and hate them the next. And it's all based on your performance. Love you one minute, hate you the next. They are un predictable gods but our God is predictable and for that I say hallelujah God is not like the pagan gods for the Christian and especially I think for the Christian in controversy because this is where that love seems to be just most manifest, just clearly seen for the Christian in controversy God's love is steady God's love is steady Nothing can make us love him more, beloved, than understanding the unchangeableness of his love. Nothing can make us love him more than understanding the unchangeableness of his love. Do we believe this? Have we felt the effects of the steadiness of the love of God? Never leaving you, never forsaking you, always good, always purposing your good. You never get wrath. You always get grace. It's the love of God. Jude later commands the Christian to keep themselves in the love of God. Verse 21. The strongest experiences I think we can have of the reality of the love of God comes from remaining in that love. He loves us objectively. That is an immovable fact. But the way we feel that a lot of times in our Christian life comes from whether or not we're struggling in sin. The strongest experiences of the reality of God's love come from remaining in that love. Now, how we do that will be discovered later. The love God has, and I'm I'm waiting to get here in this letter for you guys, for me as well. My heart has just been so full of these things. The love God has is a very guarding love, It's a very strengthening love. It cheers you up, and it soothes your heart. Those are all things that are enormous in theological controversy. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to the Jerusalem council, and they're about to enter this just debate of all debates in the church at that time. It was a theological controversy. And it's interesting, in verse 3 it says, As they were going... They were spreading joy among the churches. When's the last time you met someone embattled in theological controversy that was spreading joy? If anything, it's a looming black cloud. But there's evidence and there's key things in the text here that will get us to that point. If we can set our hearts right on these things, we can be people of joy in the midst of theological controversy. I encourage you to go read Acts 15 and pay attention to verse 3. Well, we are called, we are beloved in God the Father, and lastly, he designates us kept by, or as some of your translations say, for Jesus Christ. This is the third designation. The word kept here means guarded or preserved. It's a word that speaks of guarding or protecting The state in which the Christian remains and the state in which he continues, and that is a state of grace. Jude is speaking of the Christian's preservation by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kept, preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ in a state of grace. If you are called, if you are loved by God the Father from all eternity and in time, you are kept. Your faith sustains. This designation could be stated really as the goal of our calling. We've been called to finish the race. We've been called to persevere. And I think we can see this both ways. Kept by Jesus Christ and kept for Jesus Christ. And I think we can know the difference as English speakers. Generally speaking, scripture says that we are kept or guarded by the almighty power of God, God the Father particularly. Jesus says in John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You are kept by the Father. We're also kept or guarded by the Holy Spirit. The good work he begins in us, Philippians 1, what? He will bring To completion. The faith he begins in us, the fear he begins in us, the love he begins in us, he will bring it to completion. This is the good work he begins in us. And he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. But especially here, Jude says we are kept for or by Jesus Christ. We're kept by his merit. Think about this. He has entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His merit, his life and death secures an eternal redemption. You can never be lost because of him were kept by his union. Think about this, Hebrews two seventeen and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That union he has with our nature keeps us. And he's keeping us by his intercession. John 17, 11 and Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we know the high priestly prayer of Jesus and it's a beautiful prayer. And the father answers the son's prayers. If there's no other prayer The Father answers. It is the Son's prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. We are kept by his merit. We are kept by his union with our nature, and we are kept by his intercession. We are kept by Christ. But we're also, lastly, kept for him. You are kept as a pure and spotless bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says as much. And you are kept this despite the mire and muck of the world and despite the weakness of your own heart. He keeps you for himself. You are his and his alone. After all the apostasy is over, after all that is said and done, John records that there is a holy city a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is you. That is you, church. And Jesus said, Matthew 14, verse 3, if I go and I prepare a place for you, if I go to prepare a place for you, beloved, I will come again and will, make, and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where I am, you may be also. You are kept by him, but you are kept for him. And we're going to celebrate that in just a moment. There's a little ending there in uh, Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes. Every time we take that supper, beloved, I want you to think about that fact. He's coming back for you. He's coming back. Stop there. We are kept by Christ and for Christ. And this is a sovereign, loving work of God. Jude makes this really the book ends of his letter. We are kept by him. We are kept for him. And he ends the same way he begins. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before him, to bring you home to himself. One commentator says, it is God's initiative that brings an end to what he has begun. What God starts, he will finish. He will finish it. There's really a wonderful, as we end here, a wonderful Trinitarian pattern to our identity in Christ, isn't there? Did you catch it? We are effectually and inwardly called by the Holy Spirit to be partakers of the gospel. The ground of this calling is the continually fixed love of God the Father. And the goal of this calling is that we are kept for Jesus Christ by his merit, by his union, by his intercession. And I think this is a very comfortable truth for us. This is a very comforting truth. If it's not comforting, maybe it's a problem with the preacher. But I want you to consider these things. Our own confession says that. The Trinity is all our comfortable dependence in life. It's a very interesting little phrase at the end of that chapter. The triune God of the universe, beloved, is for us. He's for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He is for you, beloved. Is there anything, beloved of God, that will separate you from him? Is there anything? Should we go down the list in Romans 8? Peril, nakedness, sword, famine, Think about this. Will apostasy, the war over the truth, separate you from the love of God? No, it won't. In this war for the truth, if you are his, there are no casualties. War is full of casualties. That's the nature of war. But in the war for the truth, if you are his and you are contending for the truth, there are no casualties. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept by Jesus Christ. None falls away, none is lost, no one perishes who are his. None, not one. And I think Jude was very, very thoughtful by bringing these things before the church right up front. Each of these things settle the believer's heart. No one can wage a good warfare on an unsure footing. Jude has planted our feet firmly, firmly in the sovereignty of God and the love for the church. Who our God is, who we are, And where we are headed are all truths that help us sustain joy and make us useful, useful in theological controversy. If we are to wage war for the truth, if we're not to be swept up in the apostasy of our times, we must begin here. We must settle our hearts here. So, dear Christian... Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? This is a vital question and one we must answer as we begin to contend for the truth. Things may get worse. I pray God they don't. Things may get worse, but we are secure. We can smile at that. We can rejoice at that. We are secure. You are called, you are beloved, you are kept for Christ. This is who you are. And as we'll discover next time, Lord willing, you have everything you need to wage the good warfare. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would please meet our needs according to the riches we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to remember who we are, who you are, and our destiny. As we wage the good warfare, let us not forget these things and keep us tender-hearted, yet with a backbone of theological steel. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.